Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program, and we're in chapter 23 of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This chapter is titled Symbolism of Teachings, Reminders Through Imagery. This is a really fun chapter, a very short chapter, but it involves looking at some images, images that are used as part of artwork and architecture built into temple complexes and all different types of places that have Buddhist artwork or Buddhist culture and things like this. And where these symbols come from is they were actually used during the lifetime of the Buddha to remind his students of the teachings. Because keep in mind that during the lifetime of the Buddha that he taught orally, There weren't things that were written down. They weren't able to watch YouTube videos or attend classes online through the internet. They weren't able to read books and do the things that we do today in terms of the way that we take in content with learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha. So he taught everything orally. And by teaching everything orally, it meant that he needed to repeat things over and over multiple times. He would oftentimes in one discourse say the same thing multiple times and repeat the same discourse multiple times. He would also have his students twice every month, about every two weeks, they would end up orally reciting his teachings. So they would remember his teachings word for word for word, and they would actually recite them as he was observing and he was listening so that as a group, this is where chanting essentially came from, is that they would recite his teachings word for word for word. So if somebody was in one of his discourses and was learning his teachings, then they would need to actually remember them in order to be able to ultimately practice them and get to enlightenment. And one of the ways that he used in order to help people remember his teachings is he used symbolism. He used things like what we call a Dhamma wheel. He used certain plants and other things that you're going to see today as a way of reminding students of what he actually taught. So once students were actually in his discourses and had learned orally, when they see these symbols, they would be able to recall what the actual teachings were. So that's why this chapter shows up at the very end of the book, pretty much one of the last chapters, because you would have needed to learn the teachings really well and really thoroughly to then be able to look at the symbols and then understand what they actually mean and what they represent. So now that I've shared with you over the last six or seven months, all the various teachings as a foundation in this first book, 
volume one, developing a life practice, the path that leads to enlightenment, I can now share with you these symbols and connect the teachings that you already know to these symbols. And the reason why this is important is that when you're within Buddhist culture or you're on the internet looking at different artwork, or if you go to temples and you see artwork or architecture in the various temples, you'll be able to understand and kind of decipher what this artwork and what these temples and architecture mean. And they built these things and created these artworks based on the actual teachings. So with an understanding of the teachings and now connecting those teachings to symbols and artwork, you'll be able to kind of go on this scavenger hunt as you go around and look at Buddhist art and you go into temples, you'll be able to decipher and discern what it is that people 500 years, 1,000, 2,000 years ago were trying to actually say when they created these various artworks. And this will ultimately help you to retain the teachings better and it'll help you solidify your practice and be able to recall the teachings so that you can actually practice them in daily life. So I'd like to thank all of you for joining us today for today's class. It's a really fun, enjoyable class just to kind of casually look at some various images, go through those images, and then be able to talk about them and help you connect them to the teachings. If you're listening to this on the podcast, unfortunately, I can only deliver audio through the podcast. So it would be really wise for you to download this book or otherwise get a version of this book so that as you're listening to the audio, you'll be able to see the images that I'm discussing. The way to get a version of this book is go to buddhadailywisdom.com. And then from there, you can click on the button that says free books and you'll be able to either download it, you'll be able to download and print it, or you can even order it through Amazon and you'll be able to see the actual images that connect the teachings together as I'm actually teaching them. For those of you guys that are watching this in Facebook or YouTube or any other place that we send visual content, then you'll be able to see the images here, including in Zoom as well for all of you guys that are in Zoom. As we go in today's class, just like all of our other classes, if you have questions, I'll pause at different times throughout our class to provide you an opportunity to ask questions. And all you need to do is put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and the moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand asking any questions or follow-up questions directly. So let's go ahead and move right into today's class and start talking about the various images or symbols that are used in order to represent the teachings. And these are all symbols that you're gonna see, so it'll really help you to understand these as we go forward. So this first symbol, focusing on the one in the middle, is what people refer to as the na. And there's other names for it as well because there's not just one permanent name. Some people refer to this as the na, and there's other ways to refer to it as well. I tend to use the English language because I think that helps us to understand things a lot better. And the way that I would describe this is the symbol of enlightenment. This is actually a symbol depicting the path and the journey that each being takes through multiple lives and ultimately getting to enlightenment. If you focus on the image in the center, and the center of that image at the very bottom where it's kind of like a curly cue going around in a circle. This is where a being is gonna be reborn multiple times in the cycle of rebirth over and over and over and over and over again. And eventually at some point, 
this being is going to start making progress on this path to enlightenment. They're going to come into contact with these teachings in one form or another. And as they do, they start making their way out of this continuous cycle of rebirth, going around in a circle over and over and over again. But notice how when they first start on this path, the path is very wide and broad and it's very dark, right? Because the teachings aren't very clear when you first start. When you first start, it's all new, it's all different. The mind is quite muddled. It's not very concentrated because it hasn't been trained very well. So that's why the line is very broad and very dark. But then at some point as you make your way around this circle and you start making your way out of this cycle of rebirth, gradually moving and progressing on the path to enlightenment, you start moving forward and upwards. And then as you do, notice how you actually come backwards. There's actually forward progress, but then there's backwards progress. But then you move forward some more and you're moving forward and you're moving forward. And then there's some backwards kind of looping around, kind of taking some steps backwards. And then you're going forward again, forward again, and you're taking some step backwards. And then as you do, you eventually get to the point where you're at the top and the mind actually gets to enlightenment. But even notice as you're making your way forward and taking those steps backwards, how the path kind of narrows. And this is as you decide, as you choose to learn and practice, the path becomes more clear. It becomes more vibrant. You start to understand the teachings more and more. So you start refining your understanding of what it takes to actually train the mind. And that's ultimately what leads to enlightenment is through your own dedication, diligence, you end up being able to refine your practice and see the path more and more clearly, narrow in on what the real teachings are in order to actually train the mind. And that's where the mind actually ascends to enlightenment, that straight line all the way up until eventually the line no longer exists anymore. That's where you escape the cycle of rebirth. And now what happens after the cycle of rebirth, having attained enlightenment, and then there's death, the Buddha actually didn't teach what's next. He left that as an undeclared teaching. We know that if we don't attain enlightenment, then we're going to continue to be reborn in the cycle of rebirth. And that's what that lower part of the symbol is, where it goes around in a circle, around and around and around and around. But this other part, this upper portion of the symbol, is showing that journey towards enlightenment as you make your way forward. But then you're going to take some steps back in your practice. It's not going to just be forward, 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 forward. You're going to learn these teachings. You're going to be practicing them for a week or two or three. Feel like you're making progress. Notice all kinds of improvements. Then you're going to trip up. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to fall down, perhaps. That's that backwards trajectory. But then you kind of brush yourself off. You kind of learn some wisdom from having fell down or tripped over your feet. And now you make some more forward progress. And then you're going to fall down again. And you're going to trip over some things. And you're going to do this constantly until you actually narrow in on the teachings and make that final ascent all the way to enlightenment. So that's what that first one is right in the middle. This is the most common depiction, the most common symbol of enlightenment. You will oftentimes see this on statues of the Buddha. They will put it in between the eyebrows. We call this the third eye. Oftentimes they'll put it there as a symbol of enlightenment. Uh, sometimes you will see this on various shirts or different products or merchandise that you might buy. Some people even get this tattooed onto the body sometimes. 
if you ever are around ordained practitioners, particularly here in Thailand, they have these fans where they hold this fan as they're chanting in order to maintain their focus and concentration. Sometimes they will embroider this image on the actual fan. So you'll see this in different places and different artworks and different parts of your journey with these teachings as you go into different venues or you see different artwork. And because of the universal truth of impermanence, there's not just one permanent way to depict this. While the one in the middle is the most common, the one that you'll see the most frequently, there's others out there as well. And that's what these ones on the side are. I'm showing you these so you see the different variations. Again, the one in the middle is the most common, but there's these other variations as well, which are also symbols of enlightenment. Those ones on the sides, I don't have a clarification of what the part at the bottom is other than we're just kind of roaming and wandering around the cycle of rebirth. It's kind of tangled up and just kind of running all over the place, which is kind of like what we tend to do before we get on this path is our mind is just longing and yearning and grasping and running after the objects of our affection. We're just kind of doing all this squiggling around and around and around and around. And then eventually we get on the path to enlightenment and there you see those forward progressions, but you see the backwards parts too. And then it kind of narrows in as it goes up to the top. And that's also a symbol of enlightenment. So let me pause and see what questions you guys have on this particular symbol. Remember, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Hello, teacher. Where are these uh, symbols common at the time of uh, Gautama Buddha? As far as I understand, yes, that's when these originate, is during the lifetime of the Buddha. Now, whether they were in existence prior to his life or whether they were created at his life, I'm not 100% sure because even though the Buddha was teaching the path to enlightenment and he was considered the Buddha, there were people prior to the Buddha awakening to enlightenment that were looking to attain enlightenment and trying to figure out this path. And there were people that actually claimed that they had attained this mental state of enlightenment. But we know now, 2,500 years later, that they hadn't attained enlightenment or else we would still see their teachings in existence today. It's only a Buddha's teachings that are truly going to lead to enlightenment because they awoken by themselves, through their own independent journey. They guided countless people to enlightenment during their lifetime. And then after their death, countless more beings attain enlightenment after their death. That's the three main criteria that make a Buddha a Buddha. So anybody that was around during the lifetime of the Buddha that was claiming that it was their teachings that led to enlightenment, we don't have their teachings today because those teachings fell by the wayside. They weren't actually the real true path to enlightenment. This is the reason why we still have the Buddhist teachings is because they actually work and people preserve them for a period of time. So this particular symbol could have originated during his lifetime or potentially prior because people were interested in experiencing this enlightened mental state, but not everybody agreed what it was. Not everybody agreed how to attain it. Just like today, not everybody agrees what enlightenment is. Not everybody agrees what the teachings are to actually attain it. But the way that you'll know the truth is that by you learning, reflecting, and practicing, you see the condition of the mind gradually improving. Discontentedness is gradually diminishing. Things that once 
created anger in the mind no longer have that same effect anymore. And you have this diminishing of discontentedness down to frustration, irritation, annoyance. And then eventually that same exact situation can occur and the mind is just utterly peaceful. And that's how you know the training that you're undertaking is actually working because you can see the truth for yourself that the condition of the mind's improving. So that's how the Buddha knew that he had attained enlightenment because he observed the quality of his mind and he knew what it meant to have attained enlightenment. And the students that were learning with him and were experiencing similar results as him, that's how they knew that they were attaining enlightenment. Where other teachers' teachings didn't quite fit together in the same way as the Buddha's. They didn't quite explain things in the same way, and students weren't experiencing the same liberation of mind. This is one of the things that happened during the lifetime of the Buddha is that the Buddha and other teachers would sometimes talk and discuss their teachings with their respective students gathered around. And sometimes the other teacher would get angry and frustrated and kind of storm off. And people would know that they weren't enlightened. Or sometimes that teacher would be so moved by the Buddha's discourses and the way that he spoke about his teachings that they would ultimately become a student of the Buddha and bring their students with them. So there was around that time frame and in that region of the world, there were lots of people that were kind of on this path and kind of looking for how to attain enlightenment, various people claiming that they had attained enlightenment, but there were many different versions of teachings and none of those survived except for the actual Buddhist teachings. Hinduism survived. It's still around today and it was around long before the Buddha. But this symbol, I'm not sure exactly the date that it originates, but it could be before and or during his lifetime. Well, you mentioned uh, something about the third eye. Uh, would you be kind to share some explanation about this? Sure. Great question, Bassam. So we talk about something called a third eye, and we tend to talk about it as being between the eyebrows, right on the forehead between the eyebrows. And this third eye, or this inward looking eye, is what happens when the mind moves into the jhanas. When you move into the jhanas, the third eye opens up. And what a practitioner will experience is this ability to look inward, to be able to reflect and understand things that others don't understand. We call it the third eye. Some people have attributed this to a specific part of the brain or the body and say that that is the third eye. I don't necessarily know that that's true or it's false, but I can share with you that once the mind gets into the jhanas, you're gonna experience this kind of opening up of the mind where in the past, the mind was very heavily defiled and heavily polluted. You almost feel bogged down, almost heaviness in the head and in the body. But once you move into the jhanas, it's like somebody kind of flipped on a light switch, so to speak. The mind's not enlightened yet, but it's like somebody flips on a light switch and all of a sudden you can see things in the world very differently than you did before. You start kind of relating to animals differently than you did before. You start relating to the environment differently than you did before. You can even see colors more vibrantly. You can smell things more profoundly. You can taste things more profoundly. You hear sounds much more clearly. And we talk about this as opening of the third eye 
And this third eye is the ability to kind of look inward and discover wisdom that isn't necessarily apparent to the average everyday person. Zoom, I have a question from Jen. She writes, how would one write that now? You mean in terms of letters, I think, uh, spell it? Yeah. Yeah. So I would spell it as N-A. That's the way I would spell it. But I more appropriately like to just refer to this as the symbol of enlightenment because that way we all understand what it means because it's in English. But I've heard people refer to this as a na, and there's some other ways that people refer to it as well. Uh, Chris writes, the one on the left has a more of a circle separated at the tip. Is there significance there? I imagine there is because a lot of times with artwork, you know, it's really the artist that understands 100% of what is being depicted there. With the one in the middle, it's a common one. It's really well known. I understood what this one is as part of my journey to enlightenment. I started to understand what this one in the middle is all about. But the ones on the sides are ones that I just grabbed off the internet as a representation to show you that there's not just one symbol that represents enlightenment, that you'll see some others. And in some cases, it's just the artist that truly understands 100% what these actually mean. So we would need to be able to know who actually created it. So I don't 100% know what each individual facet of the ones on the left and right represent. If you ever see three, like I was looking at the one on the right side, it looks like there might be three dots at the very top. Whenever you see three in Buddhist culture and Buddhist tradition, it's always the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. We call this the triple gem or the triple jewel. And the Buddha says that you need all three of these in order to attain enlightenment. You wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment if you just had one or two of these. You would need to have all three. And what that is is confidence in the Buddha, confidence that he was enlightened, that he was a Buddha. You need to have confidence in him. You need to have access to the teachings. And then you need to be part of a community. So if you had confidence in the Buddha, but you didn't have access to the teachings and you weren't part of a community, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment. But also if you had confidence in the Buddha and you had access to the teaching, say in a written book or something, you still wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment because you're not a Buddha. You wouldn't be able to do it on your own. You don't have that third one, which is being part of a community. And also if you had confidence in the Buddha and you were part of a community of practitioners, but you don't have access to the teachings, that's where a lot of people nowadays in the Buddhist tradition, they fall into that category where they have amazing amount of confidence in the Buddha and they're part of a large community of practitioners, but they don't have the words of the Buddha in the way that he spoke them in the original source text. And because they don't have that second one, access to the teachings, they can't actually attain enlightenment because what's being shared with them is not necessarily 100% the truth. So whenever you see three in Buddhist culture, it represents the Buddha and having confidence in him and that we need to have confidence. And that grows over time as you learn and practice the teachings and you see the condition of the mind gradually improving, that confidence improves as well. And the way that you do that is by having access to the teachings so that you can learn and reflect and practice the true words of the Buddha because that's what's going to lead to enlightenment. And by being part of a community like this community here, then you have access to a teacher, you're part of 
a community of other practitioners who've been on the path for one year, two years, three years, five years. They've been learning the same teachings so that not only can you reach out to the teacher for guidance, but there might be times when you talk with other practitioners as part of the community. And the Buddha encouraged this, that as you learn his teachings, that you kind of have casual conversations with other practitioners because this helps you to articulate the teachings and bring them up in the mind and start to describe them in your own words and words that you feel are penetrating. You might use some of the Buddha's words or you might use some of your teacher's words, but you start kind of fomenting the teachings in the mind by having casual conversations with other practitioners about what their understanding of the teachings are and your understanding of the teachings are, not as a debate, not as an argument or anything like that, but just as a way of mutually sharing with each other. And then where you find disagreements or you find that you're misunderstanding the teachings or maybe they're not as clear as you thought they were, then you reach out to your teacher and you say, okay, you know, I was having this discussion with my family or with a friend or with another member of our community and I was understanding loving kindness to be this and they were understanding loving kindness to be that. You know, how would you describe loving kindness teacher? And then this is how you gain clarity on your practice because you're on an independent journey to enlightenment, but having access to a community where you can seek input from other practitioners is actually quite helpful. But you should never be in a situation where you're pushing the teachings on someone or you're forcing others to understand the teachings. But if you're in around others, like this retreat that we're having in June, in the USA, there's going to be a a whole bunch of people coming together for five or six days. We're going to be spending a lot of time with each other, doing all kinds of things, not only learning in the classroom, but going out on excursions and doing different things like spa world and going to museums and different things like this. And if you guys choose to talk about the teachings at different times, maybe over breakfast or lunch or dinner, this is a great way for you to kind of foment and kind of draw the teachings into the mind and kind of discuss them and help you to gain some clarity. Because the more clear that you understand the teachings, then the more clarity you'll have in terms of your practice and actually be able to practice the teachings. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. So let's go to the next one. This is another very common one. I put the really common ones first. This one's called a Dhamma wheel. Whenever you hear the word Dhamma, some people use the word Dharma. Dhamma means the teachings. This is a Pali word because the original source text that we all trace our teachings back to is called the Pali Canon. And the reason why it's called that is because it's written in the Pali language, which during the lifetime of the Buddha or afterwards, it wasn't really a written language. It was a spoken language. And we call it the Pali Canon or the Pali text, kind of like the original Christian teachings, I think, are in Latin, if I remember correctly. They're in Latin, but there's very few people in the world that understand Latin. So it's been brought into other languages like Spanish and English and Korean and Chinese. It's been translated. So the original, original source text is in Pali. So you might hear the word Dhamma being used because that's the Pali language. But then Sanskrit is also kind of within the Buddhist community. And some people use the Sanskrit version of this, which is Dharma, meaning the same thing. I like to use the English language because then you don't have to have this burden of learning the Pali language. You can just 
understand the teachings in a native language that you already understand. So this might be called the teachings wheel or the Dhamma wheel, right? What this is, is this is a representation of the cycle of rebirth. That's what the circle is to remind us of the cycle of rebirth. And if you were in a discourse with the Buddha having discussed the cycle of rebirth and he connected it to this wheel, you would understand this wheel represents the cycle of rebirth and it would help you to recall the teachings of the cycle of rebirth. And that the number one problem that we're all really truly experiencing is that we're stuck in this cycle of rebirth. We keep being reborn over and over and over again. And because there's birth, there's sickness, aging, and death. We keep experiencing this sickness, aging, and death over and over and over again because we keep being born. That's the real problem. And that's why we experience discontentedness. So we're working to eliminate discontentedness on this path to enlightenment. And when you do, the real problem you're solving is the cycle of rebirth so that you're no longer reborn to come back and experience sickness, aging, and death over and over and over again like we've been doing already. So by attaining enlightenment through purifying the mind, gaining wisdom and training the mind, you get to this enlightened mental state that you know that you're accomplishing that. You can see the results of that in this life as the mind becomes more and more purified in this life. Discontentedness diminishes and you know you're on the right path. You're on the right track because you see the discontentedness diminishing. And then once you completely eliminate all discontentedness from the mind, then you'll know that you've experienced enlightenment and that's a permanent mental state that you'll experience for the rest of this life. And you will know that you're no longer going to be reborn to ever experience sickness, aging, and death ever again because you've escaped this cycle of rebirth. That's what that circle is. The spokes inside the circle, this is to remind you of the eightfold path. There's eight individual spokes there. It's the eightfold path that is the path to eliminate discontentedness and thus escape the cycle of rebirth. So the eightfold path is the escape. It's like the escape hatch to get out of this whole cycle of rebirth because it's the eightfold path that helps us to eliminate all discontentedness. In eight individual steps, the Buddha explains what it takes in order to train the mind and practice these teachings on a regular, consistent basis in order to get to the point where you eliminate discontentedness, but then also you'll have eliminated the cycle of rebirth. So as you progress and you understand the one that's kind of over to the side, maybe like at a two o'clock position, that's right view. Then the one that's at a three o'clock position, that's right intention. The one that's at like a four o'clock position, five o'clock position, that's right speech. The one that's at six o'clock, that's right action. The one that's at like seven or eight o'clock, that's right livelihood. The one that's at nine o'clock, that's right effort. The one that's at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, that one is right mindfulness. And the one that's right in the middle at 12 o'clock, that's right concentration. And that's all explained as part of chapter five. And in fact, when we restart this program on April 6th, I'm gonna be starting with a three-part series of the Eightfold Path so that we can deeply soak in to understanding the Eightfold Path. I'll do it in a three-part series. And then later in the program, probably about a month and a half after that, we will then revisit the Eightfold Path. We'll revisit it 
multiple times in the group learning program when we restarted because it's so important. It's vitally important for any practitioner to deeply understand the full path. And this is why you will oftentimes see this Dhamma wheel or this wheel of the teachings to remind you of the cycle of rebirth. And then the escape of that is the Eightfold Path. And you'll see different depictions of this, either in artwork or this one that's on the left side that we're looking at on the left. This one is actually what we call a temple marker. In a certain temple, there's a big plot of land, and then there's going to be a main building in the some point on the land. And what they do here in Thailand is they use nine markers to mark out the land around this main building. This main building is the main place where we learn and we practice and we try to understand the teachings through discourses, some teachers sharing the teachings. You can think about a temple like a community center where the local community will come together and hold events and there's going to be somebody inside at different times if they're a vibrant community where there'll actually be teachings being delivered. And these markers will be marking out the territory around the main building. And of course, you probably understand that the markers are different in every temple. Not every temple is going to have the same design. I've never actually been in two temples that are exactly the same. Some temples will have markers. Most of them will, but not all of them will. And then out of the temples that have markers, you'll see different designs through different temples. So this particular Dhamma wheel that you're seeing on the left is actually a temple marker. The one on the right is just kind of a cartoonish picture of one that you might see in any particular artwork or things like that. The picture of me talking to a student in the middle, if you look behind me, there's some Buddha statues there behind me. And if you look behind the Buddha statue that's standing up, there's a Dhamma wheel that's placed behind the head of the statue of the Buddha. This is very common that you'll see this Dhamma wheel placed behind the head of a Buddha because while you understand now what the Dhamma wheel represents, we discuss that a Dhamma wheel gets turned whenever a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha awakens. So when Gautama Buddha awoke from enlightenment, he would have turned this Dhamma wheel. And a turning of the Dhamma wheel is a signification of society or civilization or all of humanity stepping forward. Because when a Buddha awakens in the world, they have deep, profound wisdom about the path to enlightenment that doesn't exist prior to a Buddha's awakening. And a Buddha awakening in the world is bringing the teachings into the world in such a deep, clear, precise and concise way that countless beings will be able to attain enlightenment during the lifetime of a Buddha and after their death. So when a Buddha awakens, this is a major step forward for all of humanity because now with a real live living, breathing Buddha awake, someone who's experienced enlightenment on their own at their own independent journey or with their own independent journey, they will have deep penetrating wisdom that doesn't exist prior to that Buddha awakening. And as they awaken, they reach up with their right hand and they touch their head and they turn their hand in a counterclockwise position. And this signifies the turning of the Dhamma wheel and that now there's the stepping forward of all of humanity. And there's a flat spot at the 
crown of a Buddha's head. So there's this top part of the skull that comes back, and then there's this back part of the skull that comes up behind the head. But when those two meet, there's a flat spot right there that is where the Dhamma wheel is. And then the Buddha will turn that wheel counterclockwise by taking their right hand and rotating it around and around and around. And a Buddha knows this. It's not really truly an actual wheel that is sitting there, but it's just kind of like a signification. It's kind of like a, I don't know what the right word is for this situation, but it's a Buddha knows that it's there. They're going to turn it with their hand, and it kind of signifies the stepping forward of all of humanity because now a Buddha is awake. They've attained enlightenment, and they can bring the teachings into the world in such a profound way that no one else would be able to do. And that is the most ideal time to be in existence. If you are alive as a human being during the lifetime of an actual Buddha, this is the most ideal time to have a human existence. Not only is the human existence the most ideal existence because you can attain enlightenment as a human being, but to be a human being at the time that a Buddha is awakened, you would have had to have massive amounts of wholesome gamma for that to have occurred. One, for you to just attain the human state, enormous amount of wholesome gamma for that to occur. But for you to be a human being and live during the lifetime of an actual Buddha, that is an enormous amount of wholesome karma because now you can learn and practice with that Buddha and you'll be able to actually have a way, 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 way improved chance of actually attaining enlightenment because you're existing as a human being during the lifetime of an actual Buddha. And that's why a Buddha awakening is such a important and pivotal time in human history because now the teachings come into the world in such a vibrant way that didn't exist prior to their lifetime. And you'll see countless people attaining enlightenment during the lifetime of a Buddha. And then after their death, they'll leave the teachings in such a condition that countless more people can attain enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this particular image of a Dhamma wheel? Well, so uh, sometimes when seeing a circle behind the head of uh, Gautama Buddha, this is a Dhamma wheel, this is not the a aura? It depends how it's depicted. If you see a circle with eight spokes, it's a Dhamma wheel. If you just see like the picture that I use up in the, um, I'm not sure, let me see if the Zoom, yeah, Zoom has it, and I have it on Facebook, YouTube, and all the other visual places. If you see that image of the Buddha sitting and meditating, and you see that kind of yellow, whitish thing around him, this is an aura. And not everyone would be able to see that aura. Only certain people can actually see auras as part of their development on this path. So some people would look at the Buddha and he would just look like any other average human being. But people who can see auras will actually see this aura around the person's head. And that's what we call an aura versus a Dhamma wheel. You wouldn't actually be able to physically see a Dhamma wheel on a head of a Buddha. But when you understand what a Dhamma wheel is, and if you see it in artwork or you see it as part of statues or things like this, then you will know what that actually means and what that signifies. But a Dhamma wheel and an aura are two different things. 
So is the aura is the kind of a expression for the wholesome or unwholesome karma? The aura is kind of like an energy that's coming off of an individual. So if somebody is enlightened, if the mind is enlightened, they're going to have this brightness and this brilliance. Their facial complexion is usually very bright, very brilliant. They're going to be smiling often and easily access to the smile. So they're going to have this brightness to them, their eyes, their facial expressions, things like this. But there is actually for people who are enlightened and can actually see auras, people who see auras can be able to see this brightness kind of glowing from that person's area of the head, which helps people who are able to see auras to know that this person is enlightened. But even without being able to see the aura, a average person looking at someone who's enlightened, you would see this kind of brightness and this radiant glow, not physically a glow, but like you'll see their skin complexion, their facial expressions. They will tend to be very radiant and bright. You won't see this frown and this grumpiness and Oh, I'm so discontent and having all these painful feelings. No, an enlightened person is going to be bright and brilliant and radiating as part of having a mind that is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, not experiencing painful feelings. Their physical appearance is going to be bright and radiant, even without necessarily being able to see an aura, so to speak. Jean writes, Teacher David, may I ask a question about seeing auras or would it be better to wait to another time? Sure, you're welcome to ask questions. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, I'm asking uh, because I um, have been told I have something called multisensory, which means that I my senses um, act differently than um, most people. For example, um, when I hear numbers, I see colors, very bright colors. When people talk to me, I often see colors. And I, I just wonder if you could maybe provide a little guidance or um, some thoughts about that. Yeah, as the mind is awakening, and even for some people that aren't even on this path, there are certain special abilities that human beings have. Some people call these uh, supernatural or things like this, or I just call them special abilities that for some people they have these even without being on the path and other people it's not until they start awakening that they experience these special abilities and then people who are off the path and experiencing these special abilities if they start to awaken to enlightenment oftentimes these special abilities will become more profound and they'll be able to notice them more readily and then there's some people who will awaken to enlightenment and never experience any special abilities whatsoever because there's not just one permanent way that we all experience these things some of these special abilities are things like psychic abilities of knowing what the future is. Some people can read minds, read someone else's minds. Some people can see auras. Some people can look at an individual and they can know their past lives and know their future as well. Uh, some people, like what you're describing, Jan, is you know see colors or different things like this. This is all part of it. Uh, the Buddha talked about these special abilities during his lifetime, and he talked about ensuring that people didn't use these special abilities to impress other people 
or you know being boastful or arrogant or egotistical about using these special abilities or using them for like kind of personal gain that it's important that we don't use like a psychic ability for personal gain and things like this and he actually discouraged the use of special abilities knowing that they exist he discouraged the use of them because he explained that you know this path is all about liberation it's about elimination it's about cessation of discontentedness but he knew as part of being a buddha that as his mind awakened i'm sure he experienced certain special abilities even the ability to communicate with other beings and other realms and things like this and as he experienced those special abilities he understood that that wasn't the goal of this path so he didn't practice those things and he kept his mind focused on liberation he kept his mind focused on getting to the ending of discontentedness even though he knew that these special abilities had been experienced by him he knew that they would also be experienced by other people as well and he kept people's minds focused on the elimination of discontentedness so if we're awakening to enlightenment and we start being able to communicate with other beings or we start having psychic abilities or being able to read minds if we cling to this and we hold on to it and we really revel in that and there's a certain amount of arrogance or pride involved in that that's going to inhibit somebody from actually getting to enlightenment because they still have conceit they haven't fully purified the mind so what he encouraged people to do is as you experience these special abilities know that they're there know that it's part of the path but then don't cling to it, just let them go and stay focused on getting to liberation, which involves realizing that even though I'm using this word special abilities, that we don't really consider ourselves special, so to speak, that it's better to just kind of look at it as like, okay, yeah, this is normal. It's a normal part of life. It's a normal part of the path. No big deal. Nothing to see here. Uh, move along, move along. Come on, let's go, move along. Uh, keep on going to enlightenment. Keep moving to Otter Hunt, right? That's the way you should think about these things is like, oh, wow, look how powerful the mind is. I see all these colors. I can see past lives. I can read people's minds. I can communicate with beings of other realms. I can see the future and know what's going to happen before other people know these things. But nothing to see here. It's completely normal. Move along, move along. No reason to go out and tell all your friends what you can do, what you can't do. Uh, no reason to hang up a shingle outside your house and say, you know, psychic readings for $150 for 15 minutes, you know, come get them while they're hot. <laughs> you know, uh, if we do these kind of things, it's just going to allow the mind to have craving. It's going to allow the mind to have arrogance and pride. Therefore, you're never going to get to the ultimate goal, which is eliminating discontentedness. So that's what the Buddha focused people's minds on. Thank you. You're welcome. Let's go to Nick for YouTube questions. Thank you, Basim. Teacher David, Susan writes, to not be reborn, we only need to re reach realization of Arahant, not a full Buddha, right? So there's four stages of enlightenment. There's the first one, which is called stream entry. There's the second one, which is called once returner. There's the third stage, which is called non-returner. And then there's the fourth stage, which we call arahant. That's when a being is actually enlightened. What a Buddha is, is an arahant. An arahant has eliminated all 10 fetters from the mind. They fully purify their mind. They are an arahant. 
The difference between a Buddha and an enlightened being is an enlightened being would have learned and practiced with the guidance of teachers in order to purify their mind and get to that fourth stage as an arahant to be an enlightened being. A Buddha, it's not actually a stage of enlightenment. It's an individual who has also gotten to that fourth stage of enlightenment by purifying the mind of the 10 fetters, but they did it all by themselves without the guidance and help of any teachers. And by having accomplished that as the first criteria of being a Buddha, of in terms of getting to enlightenment without the help of any teachers, that would be the first criteria that would be needed in order to be considered a Buddha. But then there's additional criteria as well. The second criteria would be that once you awaken on your own without the help of any teachers, you're fully enlightened. We call it fully perfectly enlightened. Now you're going to dedicate the rest of your life only to sharing the teachings to help countless beings during your lifetime to attain enlightenment. So Gautama Buddha spent 45 years dedicated to sharing these teachings into the world and countless people attain enlightenment during his lifetime. That's the second criteria. The third primary criteria is that upon the death of a person who's a Buddha, they will leave the teachings in such a condition that countless more people will continue to experience enlightenment after their death. So these three criteria, having attained enlightenment on their independent journey without the help of any teachers, dedicated the rest of their life to sharing these teachings and helping countless beings to attain enlightenment. And then the third one is leave the teachings in a condition that countless more people can attain enlightenment after their death. That's what a Buddha is. And they are an arahant but they meet this unique criteria that we call them perfectly enlightened because they don't have influences from teachers. They acquired the enlightened mental state on their own without the guidance of any teacher. So therefore, all they know is the path to enlightenment. An enlightened being who is enlightened, they will not be experiencing discontentedness, but maybe 10%, 20%, 30% of what they know could be potentially some kind of extra baggage that kind of came down over the years that isn't really truly 100% the path to enlightenment. But all a Buddha knows is the path to enlightenment. So they will try a particular type of meditation that they figured out. And if that works, they know that their mind is improving, the discontentedness is diminishing, and that is the meditation for the path to enlightenment. But if they do a meditation and it's not working, then they know that that's not part of the path to enlightenment and they discard it. Where a person who's enlightened, who's learning with teachers, they might just hold on to this meditation out of respect and admiration for their teacher. And they kind of carry this extra baggage, thinking that this is really helping them when it's really not. But a actual person who awakens to enlightenment as an independent journey, they're not going to do that. They're going to discard that. And all they know is the path to enlightenment. So this is why the teachings of a true Buddha are very penetrating, deep penetrating wisdom, very clear and concise because the mind is perfectly enlightened. They don't have any outside influences. So a Buddha is not a stage of enlightenment. The stages are stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, otter hunt. All enlightened beings are going to be an otter hunt, which means they've eliminated all 10 fetters.
But then there's going to be this unique individual that is very, very, very rare in the world. The last one that the world is currently aware of existed over 2,500 years ago, which is Gautama Buddha. And that's an individual who's accomplished those three primary criteria to be considered a Buddha. And there's other aspects of a Buddha's mind as well, which I talk about in chapter three of this first volume, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. So we'll actually talk about this when we restart the program. I'll go through in detail all the different stages of enlightenment and we'll talk in more detail of what a Buddha is and all the different aspects of the various stages of enlightenment and how you would actually attain these various stages as well. Well, thanks, teacher. Seems that there is no more questions. All right. You guys got some great questions today. All right. So this next one here is a lotus flower. You're going to see lotus flowers in Buddhist artwork and Buddhist culture a lot, not just an artwork, but you'll see actually real lotus flowers being distributed at temples and placed at kind of the front of the main building on what we might call an altar. And there'll be uh, big vases of lotus flowers and they're even kind of wooden carved lotus flowers. You'll see lotus flowers around the bottom of a Buddha statue. And the reason why we use lotus flowers is because once again, it represents this path and this journey to enlightenment. That first picture at the top, you see a closed lotus flower. What this is representative of, it's the representation of your potential to attain enlightenment. A bloomed lotus flower, like in the bottom picture, that signifies the attainment of enlightenment because the lotus flower has bloomed. But when you see a closed lotus flower, that's to remind you that you're in the human realm and you have the potential to attain enlightenment because it's kind of like a closed budding lotus, right? It hasn't opened up yet. It hasn't bloomed yet, but it has the potential to bloom. But not every lotus is going to bloom, right? Some of them are just going to stay clothed like that but you have the potential. And then when you see one open, that signifies the attainment of enlightenment. And one of the reasons why we use a lotus flower is because of the nature of the way it grows. If you've ever seen lotus flowers in the wild, this is how they grow. They're usually in a very murky lake and the ground underneath is very soft and very murky. The roots of a lotus flower go deep, 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 penetrating down into the murky earth. And then there's this strong stem that grows and grows and grows and grows, comes up through the murky water, eventually rises up above the water, this nice strong stalk of the plant. And then having rised above this murky water, then it's budding and then eventually it blooms. And this is signifying the path to enlightenment because when you're off this path and when you first start, it's like those roots deep down into the murky mud that there's this craving desire attachment the mind is holding on to all this murkiness but then as you develop on this path you start growing this strong stalk and this strong stalk is like your practice your practice of the full path is this strong stalk that helps you to grow and ascend past this murky earth in this murky water and now you rise above this murky soiled dirty world of all this craving anger and ignorance in the world all this pollution of the world you rise above that through rising through the water and then you bloom into enlightenment because you've risen above the murkiness 
and the pollution of the world. So that's why we use this lotus flower. So you'll see real lotus flowers. You'll see carvings of lotus flowers. You'll see them in artwork. You'll see them as temple markers. You'll see them a lot of different places. And it can remind you of your potential to attain enlightenment. And then if you see a bloom lotus flower, you'll know that it means that that person has attained enlightenment. So this is why they will have bloomed lotus flowers underneath of a Buddhist statue. If you look at the actual statue itself, the artist will carve in underneath of the Buddha this kind of bloomed lotus flowers. And then oftentimes people will offer bloomed lotus flowers or maybe even closed ones too because they might eventually bloom as being offered and kind of put in water. They will bloom and kind of remind you of your potential to attain enlightenment and the actual attainment of enlightenment. So what questions do you guys have here? On Zoom, Banya writes, no mud, no lotus. I'm sorry, can you say that again? Yeah, she asks, no mud, no lotus. No mud, no lotus. Ah, <laughs> I've heard that from some people. Yeah, so like the mud is representative of like the material world, right? Like material possessions and all the things that the mind holds on to and the roots going down into the mud and grabbing onto this material world is what hinders the mind from being able to ascend, right? But if you understand craving and what the mind's doing, then you can ascend from it. So by experiencing discontentedness, that's why the human birth is such an ideal existence because you experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. You experience all three feelings where in the heavenly realm, they only experience exclusively pleasant feelings. So oftentimes they have a lot of complacency and they don't actually learn and practice the teachings to attain enlightenment. But here in the human realm, we experience all three feelings because of this craving that we have. We experience all three feelings and that oftentimes is the motivation in order for us to progress on this path to enlightenment. So that's where the phrase no mud, you know, no lotus is that essentially without craving desire attachment, without you being able to see pleasant feelings, painful feelings and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, then you wouldn't know what a craving desire attachment is. Therefore, you wouldn't be able to actually eliminate it. So the craving desire attachment plays a role in helping you to see what the real true cause of discontentedness is so that then with that wisdom you can ascend beyond that ascend beyond this murky water in order to experience enlightenment well let's go to nick yes teacher david earlier you mentioned uh, meditation so a question arose on facebook uh would you like to Go over that now or at the end of class, sir? Sure. Today is kind of like a real casual day where we're just kind of having a discussion as, as a class, kind of looking at some artwork, kick back. You know, if you have a, a cup of tea or your favorite smoothie or a glass of water, we can all be sipping our, our drinks together and just having a casual discussion about artwork and any other aspects of the teachings that you would like to talk about. Very well, venerable sir. Cheers. So Kaylee on Facebook writes, so I meditated and had an anxiety attack after I think I may have come out of it too quickly. Is this normal for a beginner? I wouldn't say that it's normal, but it's not abnormal. What's causing the anxiety is not the meditation. 
Instead, it's craving, desire, attachment. That's the real cause of all discontentedness, including anxiety. And what's happening to the unenlightened mind is that as we progress in life, not knowing about this path or anything about these teachings, as we have these different experiences, it's like sweeping the dust under the carpet. Or another way that I describe it is it's like taking a ball of string and all these different emotional experiences that we have, we kind of bind them up and kind of wind them up in this ball of string or this ball of twine. Well, when you start meditating and you start working towards awakening the mind, it's like pulling that carpet back and all the dust starts flying around. Or it's like unraveling or untangling this ball of string and now these situations and experiences that you had in the past that you just buried in the mind, they start bubbling up to the surface. And it's not the meditation that's necessarily doing that. It's because you actually buried these feelings, you buried these emotional experiences in these situations, and you didn't deal with them properly at other times in your life. And now that you're starting to meditate, they're going to actually bubble up to the surface and now give you a chance to handle these situations differently than you did in the past. And this is why it's vitally, vitally, vitally important that you have direct access to a teacher so that you can learn all the teachings, not just meditation, and that in these situations you can reach out to your teacher, explain to them what you're experiencing, and they can help you with some teachings of how to now process that experience differently than you did in the past. Because in the past, we just bury these experiences, and that's why they come back and they bubble up again. They're still craving and clinging there in the mind. But when you reach out to your teacher and you let your teacher know what you're experiencing, in more detail than what you've told me already, like if there was a private discussion, you could explain to me some of the feelings and other things you were thinking about at the time. And then I could provide you some guidance in the Buddhist teachings of how to completely let go of this experience so that it will no longer be swept under the carpet or bound up in this ball of twine. Because what you need to do is you need to clear this out of the mind and liberate the mind from this experience. So what you're experiencing is not necessarily normal, but it's not abnormal either because you can have these different experiences and emotions kind of bubble up to the surface. But what's important is what you do next. If you just kind of bury it and kind of move on and not really understanding what that was and how it is affecting the mind, then you're not really dealing with it properly and the problem is still there. But if you start to understand craving, desire, attachment and all these other teachings and you reach out to a teacher privately and help them understand what it is that you're experiencing during that anxiety, then they can actually help you to completely eliminate it. Of course, you have to do the work, but by you reaching out to a teacher and sharing more details, then we can provide you the guidance and you can do the work to actually eliminate this 100%. So these kind of things can happen, not only anxiety, but you can have anger arise, you can have sadness, you can also have happiness. You can be meditating and just burst out in utter laughter based on situations from the past that you thought were long gone out of the mind. Something, you know, 5, 10, 20 years ago. You can be in meditation and then just boom, it just hits you and you just burst out in laughing. Or you can even cry, you know, during meditation. These things happen. And the more that you understand how to process them now, and you can clear them out of the mind and you're not sweeping them under the carpet, because if you do, they're just going to come back to bother you again in the future. She follows up by saying that she is enjoying the path to enlightenment so far. That's great. I'm not sure if you've been studying with me or you've been studying with other people, but you're always welcome to reach out. There's all kinds of 
resources that we have, you know, various books and podcasts and online classes and videos and different things that I offer, you know, in-person classes and courses and retreats. You're always welcome to, to learn and progress. And there's occasions where it really helps to reach out privately. So maybe one of the moderators can post the link of how you can schedule a private appointment to have a personal discussion because there's might be occasions where you need that, particularly people who are just starting out, they'll occasionally need to kind of schedule these things in order to help get some real targeted specific guidance on the things that they're challenged with. And this is how you overcome those challenges. So the way that I think about a Buddhist teacher is I think about them like we might think about a life coach. If you've had a life coach or if you know what a life coach is, that's essentially what a Buddhist teacher is, except all of our guidance is going to be coming from the teachings of the Buddha as opposed to some other you know, modern you know, schematic or something that other people have created in modern times. All the things that we provide is based on the natural laws of existence and the natural law of gamma. So feel free to reach out, feel free to send a private message, ask questions in class, post something in the Facebook group or schedule a personal guidance session. Sometimes students have told me they feel like they're bothering me if they ask a question or they schedule a personal guidance session, but that's what I'm here for. That's what I do. That's what I've devoted the rest of my life to is helping people like all of you to learn and practice these teachings. So you're more than welcome to post a question in Facebook, to ask a question in class, to send a private message or schedule a personal guidance session. If I'm not helping you, I'm going to be helping somebody else. So feel free to reach out anytime you need. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. So here, this next one is actually not one that I've ever seen in a temple or in an artwork or anything. I just grabbed it off the internet because as I was doing my research for this chapter, I was Googling different things and looking at different images and seeing all these different things. And I was like, oh, this one's kind of interesting. I'd never seen it before, but because of the things that I've already taught you, you can probably figure this one out. So oftentimes artists, being very creative, learning these teachings, progressing in these teachings. Artists will oftentimes create amazing art that we've never seen before. It's a very unique thing that it's just a brand new artwork that's come into the world. And typically that artist is the one who understands what it means. But some artists will use certain symbols that we all kind of are familiar with. And we can kind of decipher and figure out what it is that they're trying to depict in their artwork. So here I grab this one because it combines two of the things that we talked about. Here you see this symbol of enlightenment where there's this wheel at the bottom going around in a circle, and then there's this pathway of going closer and closer to enlightenment. And then at the top, you see this lotus flower, right? So both of these things are representative of enlightenment, the symbol itself and the bloomed lotus flower as well. So when I saw this one online, I was like, oh, that's interesting. I know what this one means based on what I know of these other things. And this is the fun part of learning some of these symbols is you can look at different artwork and you can kind of decipher what it is that the artist was trying to represent. If you've ever been to an art gallery or if you've ever been around artists, they tend to look at artwork that's 500 years old or you know older than that, and they'll all just kind of stand around trying to think about and decipher what was the artist really thinking? You know, why did they use that color? Why did they stroke 
the painting that way? You know, why did they represent this image in that way? And there's all this kind of aspect of the art world of trying to figure out what was in the mind of an artist 500 years ago or longer than that. And that can be really fun to try to kind of figure that out. It's like a mystery to try to figure out. So the more that you understand about these different symbols, you'll be able to actually decipher these things and figure things out. Even if it's ones that I haven't taught you, you might see that some of these ones that I have taught you are being combined with other symbols and that'll allow you to kind of figure out the mystery, so to speak. This is that scavenger hunt that you can go from temple to temple to temple and kind of figure out what artists are trying to represent. Any questions on this one? Yes, teacher. It seems that some people tend to make tattoos with these symbols. Is this something unwholesome? There's nothing unwholesome about a tattoo itself. If you would like to have a tattoo, you can have a tattoo that's, you know, your decision to be able to do. One thing that happens if we do get involved in lots of tattooing is it can reinforce in the mind that there is a self here and that this body is the self. So oftentimes we might do a lot of tattooing at different times in our life, but as we start to realize non-self and we start to realize that this body isn't the self, oftentimes people on their own choose to no longer get tattoos because they don't necessarily see it as an important part of their life to decorate this body. They would rather direct that money towards something else, like maybe sharing the teachings in the world or helping children and orphanages to eat or helping disadvantaged beings rather than kind of absorbing these resources and this money just to decorate this physical body. It doesn't mean that decorating the body or having tattoos is wrong or wholesome or you shouldn't do that because it, it's your choice. You can do whatever you'd like to do, but you might find that as you progress closer to realizing non-self, that you might choose if you have in the past done tattoos, you might choose to not do tattoos any longer, but that's of course your own choice. There's nothing that says that tattoo is wrong or unwholesome or anything like this. The Buddha didn't come up with rules like that where we kind of look at somebody and then judge them for things that they're doing or not doing. Everybody's practice is their own practice. If somebody has tattoos from head to toe, Great, wonderful, that's what they chose to do, outstanding. And I think a lot of tattoos are very beautiful and very intricate and very amazing that, that we can do this kind of thing today. But if somebody else chooses not to get tattoos, it doesn't mean that they're any more wholesome or unwholesome than the person who did get tattoos. One of the things that the Buddha did talk about as it relates to tattoos though, is when he talked about right livelihood for ordained practitioners, he described that ordained practitioners should not provide tattoos. And the reason why is because he kept the ordained practitioners focused on learning, reflecting, practicing the teachings, and then also teaching and sharing the teachings into the world. Because remember, ordained practitioners, they're living and sustaining their life based on the offerings of the household practitioners. So the household practitioners are going out, they're working, they're laboring, they're making certain efforts in order to sustain their own life, but then they're kind of carving off some of that food or carving off some of that money or making the effort to offer robes and other things to these ordained practitioners so that the ordained practitioners, they don't have to work. 
And because they don't have to work, they can then get deeper into their practice, which means they understand the teachings more deeply and they're able to then share those teachings with the practitioners, the household practitioners. So this is the exchange. This is the gamma. By the household practitioners going out and working and laboring and doing what they do in order to sustain their own life and then sharing some of that with these ordained practitioners, the ordained practitioners get to stay in this womb where they can develop their practice. And then as a way to return that favor, return that gamma of the household practitioners making these offerings to allow them to kind of reside in that womb, what the ordained practitioners are supposed to do is offer back to the students and the household practitioners, the ordained practitioners are offering back teachings to further help the practitioners who are in the household lifestyle. So there's this mutual support where the household practitioners are supporting the ordained practitioners, but then the ordained practitioners are supporting the household practitioners. So the Buddha was interested in preserving the ordained practitioners that they didn't do any other livelihood except for learn, reflect, practice, and teach the teachings of the Buddha, because that's ultimately what's going to lead to liberation of mind and enlightenment. So if an ordained practitioner is offering tattoos, then they're going to have to devote a certain amount of time, effort, and energy to learn how to do that. They're going to have to devote certain resources to doing that, to learn it, and then deliver it. And then in delivering the tattoos, then that ordained practitioner is reinforcing the permanent self, which isn't actually there. They're actually practicing something that's contrary to the teachings. So it goes opposite of what the Buddha was set up in terms of the household practitioners and the ordained practitioners. But likewise, the Buddha also encouraged ordained practitioners to not do many different livelihoods, not just tattooing, but he discouraged them from doing all sorts of different livelihoods because he was interested in having them reside in this mother's womb, so to speak, developing their practice through learning and practicing and evolving their mind, and then devoting their time to sharing those teachings with the household practitioners. And this is the mutual support that we see between household practitioners and ordained practitioners. So while us household practitioners, we have certain livelihoods that the Buddha knew would lead to harm in the world, and it's a very limited number. It's only kind of five different livelihoods. He gave a multitude of livelihoods to the ordained practitioners and said, don't practice any of these, not just tattooing, but things like psychic readings and blessing houses and blessing marriages, reading astronomy, you know, all these different things that would kind of further dilute the mind. He encouraged and guided them not to do these things. But of course, even today, people who aren't practicing the teachings very closely, we see ordained practitioners who do give tattoos and who do read astrology and who do do consecration of marriages and blessings of homes and all these things because they're really far away from the teachings of the Buddha. But if an ordained practitioner is practicing very deeply, what they would do is just learn, reflect, practice, and then share the teachings with those people who are interested in learning. But we don't necessarily see that in a whole lot of places because 
this 2,500 years of impermanence from the lifetime of the Buddha and his death until now, there's been all these changes over 2,500 years. So we do see ordained practitioners that aren't as close to the Buddhist teachings as existed during the lifetime of the Buddha when he was there with that vibrant wisdom, those penetrating teachings to be able to deeply help everyone understand what the true teachings are. And now having gone 2,500 years without a Buddha, people have gotten really far away from the teachings. Jean asks for some explanation for this picture of the foot of the Buddha, which is shared on Zoom. The what of the Buddha? The foot of the Buddha. I think it's shared now on Zoom. So let me take a look since I've never seen it before. So there's often artwork where they depict the feet of the Buddha and they say, you know, this is the feet of the Buddha. And you'll see different artists represent them in different ways. There's depictions in the original source teachings of the Buddha that describe that he was walking down the street one day and down the street, it was a dirt street. It had recently rained and it was taking impressions of his feet as he was walking. And there were people that were following behind him. And remember, there's no outward physical characteristics of what a Buddha is. Like you could be looking at a Buddha and not even know it if you don't know how to tell what an actual Buddha is. So as these people were walking and following behind this individual, they didn't know who the individual was. All they saw was these impressions of feet as they were walking on this dirt road that had recently rained and there was these impressions left behind. And in the Pali Canon, there's description of these marks of the feet that this person was walking. It happened to be the Buddha. And there was these depictions of these wheels, you know, at the heel and at the sole, which is what you're seeing in this artwork that you're showing. So this artwork is representing that story in the Pali Canon where there were people that were following behind who we know to be the Buddha. And the description of what his impression of his feet was, was a impression of a foot with these wheels, this Dhamma wheel, the circular pattern on the bottom. So these aren't his actual feet impressions. This is just an artistic representation of what people read in the Pali Canon about what his feet looked like. And you'll see this representation and you'll see other representations in other parts of the Buddhist world. Oftentimes there's a statue laying on the side which is depicting the Buddha's death. We call it the reclining Buddha. And if you look at the feet, they will have feet at the bottom where he's laying on his side and you can see the bottom of his foot and they'll have it kind of create like a graph, like lines that are vertical and lines that are horizontal. And in each one of those squares, you'll see different beings. You'll see like a goat and a sheep and a cow and a chicken and a turtle. And they say these are the different past lives of the Buddha. And these are all just artistic representations of what people are learning and practicing as part of the original source teachings. And then they represented an artwork like this just to kind of remind us of what we already have learned in the Pali Canon. Thanks, Richard. No more questions. All right. So let's move forward. Now we're at this particular picture, which is one that I share here. When you go visit various temples and you're at various temples, you might see this image that you see here in all these different pictures is this big 
serpent king, or we call this the naga. Thais call it a panyana, I think is what they refer to it as. This is what we call the serpent king or the king of the serpents. There's this story behind it that I'll tell you the story. But before I tell you the story, just to let you know that there's probably some folklore and some legend mixed into this story. I don't have any way to confirm that this story is true or false. But when I tell you the story, after I'm done telling you the story, I'll kind of summarize it for you because inside the story, there's actually teachings that will help you to understand the path to enlightenment if you understand this story and you understand the path to enlightenment. So where you'll see these is you'll see them at the beginning of a staircase at temples. Oftentimes temples are built up on a mountain or there might be a pathway that leads to a temple or even just a building, this one on the left is a bunch of students and I standing in front of an ordination hall. This is where monks go to get ordained and you see the little statues there. What this Naga King or this King of the Serpents is, it's based on a story that is said to have happened during the lifetime of the Buddha. And here's the story. Again, folklore and legend kind of mixed into it, but then I'll kind of circle back at the end and kind of help you to understand the real nuggets for the path to enlightenment. The story is, is that during the lifetime of the Buddha, there was this being who was in the animal realm, the king of the serpents. And this king of the serpents had a quite a bit of good wholesome gamma such that it could transform its body from that of an animal in the serpent into looking like a human being. This is like a special power that this particular king of the serpents had. And he would oftentimes transition his body to look like an ordained practitioner. And he would go into these discourses where the Buddha was teaching because the Buddha would teach and there would be all these different people that were gathered around listening to him teach. And this serpent king, if he would have went in as the serpent king, you know, everybody would have gotten scared and ran away in fear and he wouldn't be able to learn the teachings of the Buddha. So he converted himself into this image that looks like a human and as an ordained practitioner and he would make his way into these discourses and he would sit and he would listen to the Buddha. The Buddha would talk sometimes for many hours at a time because the Buddha's mind doesn't get tired. They have the enlightenment factor of energy. They could just talk and talk and talk all day long about the teachings without ever getting tired and be able to share the teachings into the world with those who are interested to learn. So after, you know, two, three, four hours of teaching, what was really common is that the people that were listening to the Buddha would fall asleep, right? And we would kind of consider that rude. If I was teaching and students were dozing off and falling asleep, people might consider that to be rude. I don't consider it to be rude, but other people might consider it to be rude. I just think of it as, okay, that student's tired, so they must need to sleep. But some people consider it as rude. What happens is when a Buddha is actually teaching and talking, it's a lot of work to listen to the teachings. It's quite a challenge. And then as you're listening to the teachings, the mind is doing the work that it needs to do in order to purify itself and gain enlightenment and experience enlightenment. And in that work, oftentimes two, three, four hours worth of discourses, students will doze off and they will fall asleep because the mind is working so hard in this talk that the Buddha is giving. So as the Buddha was talking in this discourses with this serpent king looking like a ordained practitioner, a human being, all the ordained practitioners start to slowly doze off and fall asleep, including the serpent king. 
and they all fall asleep. And they're all dozing off and they're all sleeping. And the Buddha, you know, there's massive numbers of people around. And then after they sleep for a while, some of the ordained practitioners start waking up and they observe this serpent king in their midst. Because when the serpent king falls asleep, his consciousness gets reverted back to looking like a physical form of a serpent of an animal because while he's alert and he's awake and he has awareness of mind he can stay in the form of a human being and as an ordained practitioner but when he fell asleep his consciousness slipped and he went back into the form of a serpent and as these different ordained practitioners were waking up realizing that there's this big serpent in their midst they got very scared and very fearful and they go off and they get the buddha because the serpent king is still sleeping as a serpent. They go and get the Buddha and they bring the Buddha over. And, the, you know, there's all this turmoil and all this fear and everybody's very scared. But the Buddha is not scared because an enlightened being doesn't have fear. And particularly a Buddha is not going to have fear because they're enlightened. And they just come over and they see and observe what's going on. And this serpent king starts to wake up. And the Buddha interacts with them and says, you know, why are you here? What are you doing? And the serpent king says, I'm interested in learning your teachings and progressing to enlightenment. And the Buddha is like, you know, you, you can't do that because you're in the animal realm. You're not able to cultivate the mind to the point of attaining enlightenment. All you're doing here is you're actually scaring people and making it difficult for these human beings to learn and understand the teachings so that they can practice and train their mind you should wait until your next life because obviously you must have some really good wholesome gamma that you're able to convert yourself into a human. So it looks like you're going to be reborn in your next life as a human. So therefore, that would be the time when you should learn and practice my teachings. And you can come and learn as a human, not now as an animal, because it's not going to actually help you because you can't actually attain enlightenment. Just wait until you're in the human birth then you won't be scaring all these practitioners, you know, give them that ability to learn and practice the teachings. So the snake, the serpent king, being respectful of the Buddha's wishes and intentions, agrees. He says, okay, I will leave. I'm not going to disturb all of these people. I will leave. But I'm going to go stand outside and I'm going to stand guard. And anybody who tries to come learn with you, who doesn't have good intentions, I'm going to stand guard and protect your teachings from any evildoers. So this is why we see these statues at the foot of the stairs, because it's a reminder to you. It's a reminder to you of this story that enlightened beings don't have fear, that you can't attain enlightenment in the animal realm, and that anybody who walks into this temple you should have good intentions. You should have wholesome intentions that you're not interested in doing any evil to the actual teachings of the Buddha and that you're interested in learning and practicing them in the way that the Buddha actually taught. So this representation of this Naga king is in the serpent king is to remind you of all of this. And you'll see him positioned at the foot of stairs before you go up into the temple to remind you of this story and that if you're going to walk up these stairs to the temple, you should do so with wholesome intentions, that you're not interested in doing any evil to the Buddhist teachings. You're interested in sincerely learning them and practicing them in a way for you to get to enlightenment. And then, oh, by the way, 
thank goodness you're human, right? Because you see this animal out there and he's got to stay outside, but you can go inside. So thank goodness you're in this ideal human condition, this ideal human state, because you can actually attain enlightenment where this animal cannot. So this is what the story is meant to represent. And I say that it can be folklore or it can be something like this because I don't see any beings that exist today that are snakes and that can transition into human beings. I don't see any of those beings around. I've never seen one of those beings. So I don't know that that part of it is necessarily true, but all the other storytelling around this is helping us to understand the teachings of the Buddha more clearly. So whether this truly actually happened or not, I'm not 100% sure. It is in the Pali Canon, and it's described in the Pali Canon as having happened, but I don't necessarily know that it did happen. If it did happen, okay, great. I don't see any of those beings around today. They must have all died already. If it didn't happen, okay, great. That's fine too. The story by itself does help us to understand this path to enlightenment a bit, that an enlightened being needs to eliminate all fear, that animals can attain enlightenment. Thank goodness you're in the human realm. And as you enter into a temple, do so with a mindset of a sincere interest to learn and practice the teachings and not cause any harm to the teachings of the Buddha. What questions do you guys have on this? Chris has a question. He writes, didn't the Buddha say something about not having statues of him? Is the fact that there are statues of the Buddha simply due to the fact that we have moved farther from the time of the Buddha thus diluting the teachings about not having statues of him? Yes, Chris, this is something you're going to see in the next chapter, chapter 24. So we're going to be talking about it next week. But just as a precursor to that, from all of the things that I understand, although I've never seen it in the Pali Canon, the Buddha did share that we shouldn't make statues of him, that that wouldn't be a wise thing to do. But people did ultimately end up creating statues of him. So during his lifetime, There was no need for any statues of him because he was there physically. But then there was this period of time, about two or three hundred years after his death, that he was gone. He wasn't around. His teachings were there. People were still getting enlightened, but he wasn't around. And it was around two or three hundred years after his death that the people who were learning the teachings of the Buddha started coming in contact with people from Greece and people that were in Greek culture, they were creating statues of all these various gods that they believed in. So the Buddhist practitioners learning from the Greek people, when they saw them making statues of their various gods, you know, I can imagine a group of them looked at each other and like, who do we have to make a statue out of? Oh, the Buddha, let's make a statue out of him. But by that time, Nobody truly, really 100% knew what the Buddha looked like because two or 300 years after his death, they didn't have direct contact with the Buddha. All we had was a description of him written out in the Pali Canon. So if you look at the very early Buddhist statues and here in Thailand, they make statues that are very similar to the very earliest ones that were created. They look very much inspired from Greek art. And then as you evolve from there and you look at Chinese Buddhist statues and Japanese Buddhist statues and things like this, each culture kind of casts the statue based on their own facial features and 
cultural representations of that culture. So if you look at a Buddhist statue from China, it looks very Chinese. If you look at one from Japan, it looks very Japanese. If you look at one from Thailand, it looks somewhat Thai. And this is because the artist within that particular country and culture, they're creating these statues that look very much like themselves because everybody kind of wants to have the Buddha look like them, right? That kind of makes them feel good. And this is essentially craving desire attachment. And that's why the Buddha provided guidance to not make any statues of him and that it's important not to do that because then people would just cling to these statues. And now what we've gotten to is we've gotten to the point where people have all these different beliefs about these statues. People will worship these statues. People will bow down to them. People will offer them flowers. People will offer them food and drinks. Some people will say the spirit of the Buddha is inside the statue and you have to pray to the statue in order to get enlightened. And this is just the mind becoming more diluted and more confusion or more ignorance, the unknowing of true reality around what the Buddha truly actually taught. So in this next chapter, the misunderstandings of Gautama Buddha's teachings, I put this in there because it's a common misunderstanding that people think that you have to have a Buddha statue in order to practice Buddhism, and you don't. And then there's also all these misunderstandings around what a Buddha statue represents. Well, a Buddha statue is really just metal or plastic or epoxy or whatever material it's made out of. That's all it is. It's actually not a Buddha itself. But people get so attached to these statues that people think that these statues actually represent the Buddha, that there's all these cultural norms around a Buddha statue. And some people get really angry if you don't practice these cultural norms around the Buddha statues because their mind has craving, desire, attachment. But all these beautiful Buddha statues all over the world, they're beautiful. They're amazing. They're outstanding artwork but they're not the Buddha himself. There's not the spirit of the Buddha in them, worshiping one of these statues, praying to one of these statues, making offerings to one of these statues is actually gonna take you farther away from enlightenment because your mind is diluted versus if you truly understand that this is just a piece of artwork and it's beautiful, they're here, people are gonna probably continue to have them long into the future, but as long as you understand that praying to these statues, worshiping these statues isn't going to produce enlightenment, then you're moving towards enlightenment because you understand what the Buddha called the fetter of wrong behavior and observances. This is the third fetter out of the first three fetters. It's the third fetter. And this needs to be eliminated from the mind in order to attain the first stage of enlightenment and ultimately to attain enlightenment itself. An individual will have to eliminate what's called wrong behaviors and observances. And what this relates to is a practitioner has to understand and practice in such a way that they know that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship does not lead to enlightenment. Because if you understand what the real problem in the unenlightened mind is, which is this ignorance and this unknowing of true reality, and the antidote to that is wisdom, and the way that you get to wisdom is you learn, reflect, and practice the teachings with guidance from a teacher to independently verify the teachings. And then you see the truth for yourself that there is wisdom. And now the mind starts functioning through this wisdom and making wiser decisions in your life. There's nothing 
in terms of rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that's going to produce wisdom in the mind. So someone who's practicing rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, the mind has actually still got that fetter or that taint or that pollution of wrong observances and behaviors. And if they continue to do that, their mind is going to remain diluted and it's not even going to get to the first stage of enlightenment, let alone to enlightenment itself. Chris has his hand raised. Let's go to him. So am I correct in understanding then that it's okay, it would be okay then to have a statue, but much like the rituals and worship and those things, it's how you perceive it, like if, as long as it does, doesn't become an object of desire or attachment, it's okay because you understand it to be more symbolic, more artistic, and again, not something that you hold too tightly to. Right. So remember, the Buddha didn't create a bunch of rules. He provided guidance. So his guidance is, don't make any statues of me at all. Right. Because he knows that that's not what's needed in order to attain enlightenment. And that would be ideal because then it's just completely not part of your practice and it's nowhere around. That would be ideal. But for some people, they like to have a statue of the Buddha or they like to have a artwork of the Buddha around. And this is a way to kind of remind them to practice the teachings on a daily basis. And it helps them to cultivate this gratitude and appreciation and respect towards the Buddha by kind of visually seeing this picture or the statue of the Buddha on a regular basis. If you have one and you choose to have one as part of your practice, if you do what you say, which is you deeply understand that this is just a piece of artwork and it's there perhaps to remind me of the Buddha, to have gratitude, appreciation, and respect for the Buddha. It's there to help me to remember the teachings and practice them regularly. Okay, great. That sounds wonderful. The mind is seeing things clearly. But if the mind goes into worshiping or having ceremonies or rites and rituals and thinking the spirit of the Buddha is in there and they're attached to this statue, holding on to it, and if, if this statue was broken or stolen, you would be angry or frustrated or irritated, then that statue is holding you back from attaining enlightenment. The craving, desire, attachment to the statue is what's holding you back from attaining enlightenment. Having that wrong grasp of behavior and observances in the mind is holding the person back from attaining enlightenment. So whether somebody has a statue or doesn't have a statue isn't what's important. What's important is what you said, Chris, is how the mind perceives it. If you perceive it as beneficial, as rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, and you're craving and you're attached to it, you're going to be discontent if something happens to it, that's holding you back and hindering you from attaining enlightenment. But if you have it over here and you're appreciating it as a piece of art, okay, great. And that can be really potentially helpful for you. So it's all about how the mind thinks and how the mind is being trained. And that's what's the real important thing is here. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. On Zoom, Bunny writes, did the Buddha taught us for non-self? Did the Buddha, I'm sorry? Yeah, did the Buddha teach us to have no self? The Buddha taught that there is no self. And then he guided us in how to realize non-self. So this is the third universal truth. If you look in volume one, chapter four, I explain the universal truth of non-self there. And I also explain it in chapter 16 in a lot more detail. So there is no self. But the problem is, is that the unenlightened mind 
mistakenly believes and falsely perceives that there is a self. And this is part of the reason why the mind experiences discontentedness, because it has that fetter, taint, or pollution of personal existence view. And in order to get to even the first stage of enlightenment, a practitioner has to realize non-self. They have to eliminate personal existence view. And in order to do that, it's the universal truth of non-self that helps you to understand how to do that. So the Buddha taught that there is no self, and you can see the truth for yourself on that topic if you investigate chapter four and chapter 16 of this book series in volume one, you'll see how I detail and explain how there is no self, but then you have to realize that on your own. And oftentimes it takes multiple conversations and discussions with a teacher and then a whole lot of practice on your own to get to that point where you no longer mistakenly believe or falsely assume or falsely perceive having this misperception or this misunderstanding as if there is a self. Because the unenlightened mind is going to think that this body or this mind is the self, but it truly isn't. But you don't see that right off the bat. And that's part of the reason why the mind is in the unenlightened state. So you would have to realize non-self in order to get to that first stage of enlightenment. And then having done that, you would ultimately be able to actually get to enlightenment itself as part of those four stages of enlightenment. That's good, Nick. Thank you, Bonson. Teacher David, Manal on Facebook writes, would reverence for the Buddha be acceptable? Yes, reverence is like gratitude, respect, appreciation. This is all very, very helpful. And not only towards the Buddha, but all beings, right? Like, I don't know what Gautama Buddha would say. I can tell you what I would share. But if students are really respectful and have appreciation and gratitude towards me, it would be wonderful if they had that same level of appreciation, gratitude, and respect towards other people as well, because that's going to maintain their life practice in such a way that they're treating all beings equally. So yes, you can absolutely have reverence and gratitude, appreciation, and respect for the Buddha. And I would suggest that a practitioner should have that for every being in their life, because that's what's going to ultimately help them attain enlightenment by treating all beings equally. Thank you, teacher. No more questions. Okay. So this is the last image that I have as part of this chapter that I'll share with you guys. I left it for the end, which is this really amazing tree. Uh, this tree has a bunch of different names, which I put into the book. The most common name that we refer to this as is a Bodhi tree. This is what people usually refer to it as. But there's a Latin name. It's called Religialis Ficialis or something like that. Uh, it's got this Latin scientific name. And uh, this is the location that we attribute the attainment of enlightenment for the Buddha at this tree. And you can actually go visit this if you would like. And it has this leaf that I'm showing here and representing for you. Uh, we attribute this location as being where the Buddha attained enlightenment. But in reality, he really attained enlightenment over a six year period that he left the royal palace. And then over a six year period, he attained enlightenment. But then also he describes not only a gradual progression to enlightenment, but he even talks about it as being a multiple lifetime pursuit, that it wasn't just his last life, that he was working towards the attainment of enlightenment, but he was working towards the attainment of enlightenment in previous lives prior to his last life as well. 
But, you know, when a Buddha arises in the world, we kind of look for, you know, where can we attribute the attainment of enlightenment to the Buddha? And this is the tree that everybody kind of picked. And the Buddha actually is the one who shared with people that they can consider this to be the place where he attained enlightenment. But he also taught that, you know, he didn't just flip a switch and attain enlightenment, like is oftentimes shared as part of the Buddhist teachings. People think that he just sat down and meditated under this tree and he instantly attained enlightenment. That's not how he actually talks about it in his teachings. But he did say that we can attribute this location as being the location of where he actually did attain enlightenment with the understanding that it was a multi-year pursuit and a multiple lifetime pursuit. My understanding is that he attained enlightenment and then he came to this tree and he sat here for seven weeks contemplating whether or not he was actually going to teach and share these teachings with the world. Because prior to him going off on his own and actually discovering how to attain enlightenment, he was amongst other students and other teachers for about two years. And they were teaching him all kinds of different things that we would probably consider strange today about how to attain enlightenment. And ultimately he realized that this wasn't helping him and he goes off on his own and he discovers the true path to enlightenment. And that path to enlightenment that he discovered is so radically different than what was being practiced and taught around that region of the world that he was very concerned whether or not people would actually be willing or interested to actually learn and practice what he had to share. So he spent seven weeks contemplating around this tree of whether or not he would actually teach and share these teachings with others, or perhaps would he just kind of go back to the royal palace. Well, we know what happened is he spent the next 45 years of his life sharing these teachings into the world. So it's this tree that we attribute to the location of where the Buddha attained enlightenment, but in reality, it really happened over multiple years and multiple lifetimes. This particular tree, not only can you go visit it, but there are certain places in the world that branches of this tree have been given, and then they take that branch and they go grow kind of like a sister or a brother to this tree. And there's places like that here in Thailand where they say it's the exact same kind of descendant of this tree that has been kind of spread out throughout the world. And this tree has this particular leaf that you see here. And this leaf is yet another symbol of enlightenment because the Buddha is said to have attained enlightenment under this tree, even though we know that that's not what truly happened. This leaf is associated and it depicts the attainment of enlightenment. If you see that little string at the top of the leaf that kind of goes up and then kind of curls off to the side, it's very similar to that symbol of enlightenment that goes around in a circle. It weaves and then it goes up and to the top. So this leaf is oftentimes used in artwork as a representation of the attainment of enlightenment, the location where the Buddha attained enlightenment, and helping us to remember this particular tree. So you'll see the shape of this leaf in different artworks and different uh, symbols as you navigate throughout the Buddhist culture and the Buddhist world. Questions on this particular image and the significance of this tree? Yes, sir. Uh, Jean writes, I have noticed that the Buddha often mentions monks going to the forest to meditate. Is there a particular significance to meditating under a tree? I haven't really done a whole lot of meditation under a tree, so I'm not 100% sure. 
I would think that during the lifetime of the Buddha, that was probably a very common place to meditate because that's what he was teaching. And I would imagine it would be very calming and very settling to meditate at the foot of a tree. I haven't really practiced it much myself, so I don't know what the real effects are. But there are people that do that today, that they'll meditate under a tree. For me, what I encourage people to do is actually meditate in multiple different places rather than just picking one place because the mind will get attached to this one place. And then when you go meditate somewhere else, it'll have difficulties meditating in that location. So if you meditate in multiple different places, maybe in your living room, in your dining room, outside, under a tree, at a park. I've seen people meditating on a boat, on the top of an engine compartment, you know, all different kinds of places. This is the impermanence that the mind can really benefit from in meditating in lots of different places. But he must have saw some value in that. So that's why he taught it. And I imagine that's what he did because he spent a lot of time in the forest, which I imagine was a pretty quiet place because, you know, nowadays here in Thailand, not too many people go into the forest because, you know, in America, I grew up and I was always in and out of the woods. We spent, you know, all day long in the woods growing up as a child, and it was a great place to be. But here in Thailand, they have things that will truly hurt you in the forest. You know, they have tigers and they have uh, poisonous snakes and poisonous spiders and they have bears and different things like this. And very few people spend time in the forest and the jungles here in, in Thailand. And I imagine if this is what we're seeing here 2,500 years later, that there must have been a proliferation of animals and forests that existed during the lifetime of the Buddha that have since been destroyed that I imagine during the lifetime of the Buddha, there must have just been this amazing vegetation and this amazing animal life that we don't necessarily understand today, but it must have just been flourishing during that lifetime. So I imagine there wasn't very many people that probably went into the forest as a individual during this lifetime because there were so many things that could hurt you in the forest. There's actually points in the Buddhist teachings on the Pali Canon where he is encouraging students to go to the forest and have solitude and meditate at the foot of trees. But then there's also situations where kind of like newer students are coming to the Buddha and consulting with him and sharing with him that they are interested in going to the forest and they would like to go to the forest. And the Buddha discourages them from doing that. Of course, it's their decision of what they do. But brand new students and kind of newer students, he actually discouraged them from going to the forest because of the harsh conditions that exist in the forest. He was saying that, you know, they could kind of be swept away by these harsh conditions. And he encouraged them to kind of stay amongst the community for a period of time at the beginning of their practice before they consider going away to remote lodgings and into the forest because of the challenges and struggles that you experience living in a forest with all these animals and beasts and insects and poisonous things and things that could essentially kill you. So I'm not sure exactly 100% of what the benefit of meditating at a tree is because I haven't really done it much, but I imagine it was quite peaceful to do so, particularly during the lifetime of the Buddha because there wasn't that many people that were willing to go into the forest. Are there any pictures for a, uh, the Four Noble Truths, uh, Three Universal Truths, uh, and something like this? What do you mean by pictures? I mean symbolism. Oh, symbolism. Um, let's see. I haven't really seen any. Yeah, I haven't seen any for the Three 
universal truths or the Four Noble Truths because the main symbolism that you see is around the Eightfold Path because all the teachings connect into that. And that's like the central core teaching. So most of the symbolism that I see is all around the Eightfold Path because the Four Noble Truths connects into that as part of the Eightfold Path. So since that is the path to enlightenment, it seems like the artists really spend their time representing that. But that's not to say that it's not out there. There may be somewhere, but I just haven't seen it. Thanks, teacher. That's all for today. All right. Well, I'll just thank you all for joining for today's class. As you see, there's lots of different symbols and artwork and ways to represent these teachings. If you're an artist and you're so inspired and you start making some artwork around these teachings as you learn them and practice them, go for it. That would be an outstanding contribution to the world is creating some Buddhist artwork around these different stories and different teachings and things that we understand as part of this path. So as part of your journey, if you're so inspired, you know, go for it. I'm not telling you you need to or that you should, but don't hold back. If that's something that you feel like you're inspired to do, then go for it. I think that's a great contribution to the world of art is to have different artworks. And if you ever come here to Thailand, particularly Chiang Mai, there's places that you can go that really specialize in Buddhist artwork. And when I was in America, I imported a lot of this Buddhist artwork. I brought it back with me to America and I had an amazing collection of various Buddhist artwork in America. And then when I ultimately left America and moved to Thailand, I I got rid of all that stuff and let different people enjoy it and take over ownership of it. So this is something that you can choose to do. And now that you're starting to understand some of the symbolism, you can maybe interact with some artists. And some people like to commission artwork as well. You can actually go to an artist who's a well-known Buddhist artist and actually commission certain artwork if you like. That can be a nice way to remind you and the people around you of the teachings. And there's just amazing artwork that you'll see here in Thailand having had these teachings for 800 to 1200 years in this culture you can just imagine the amazing amount of artwork that's in part of these temples and part of people's houses and different places that you go. So if you ever come to a Buddhist culture and a Buddhist country like Thailand, this can be one of the fun and enjoyable things that you do is go around and experience these different places and venues that have artwork. And as you are starting to create temples in your own home, like places like America or South America or Africa, places like this that don't really have many temples because Buddhist teachings are very new to those cultures, there's going to be the development of temples and artwork in these places that it doesn't exist today. And perhaps you might decide as an artist to come to a place like Thailand and see some of the artwork that's being created so that you're inspired to then create similar artwork or your own choice of artwork in places like Africa or South America or North America and things like this. So this is a very fun and interesting topic because you can go visit these different venues and glean understanding of the teachings as you move about the Buddhist world and see these different things. Next week in our class on Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 24, which is titled Misunderstandings of the Buddhist Teachings. So just like this particular chapter we put at the end of the book because it requires an understanding of all the teachings that I've been sharing over the last seven months, this chapter on misunderstandings of Gautama Buddhist teachings is at the end of the book for that reason as well, because I focus the entire book on sharing with you what the teachings of the Buddha are 
But then when you go out into the Buddhist world, whether it's on Facebook or various temples or you communicate with various people or even you pick up different books from different authors who aren't necessarily basing their practice on the words of the Buddha, you're going to see a whole litany of different things that people are sharing as part of what they call the teachings of the Buddha. So in chapter 24, I go point by point and I take some of the major misunderstandings And not only do I just say that it's a misunderstanding, but I help you piece by piece dissect and be able to see the truth for yourself of why it's a misunderstanding. So like the question Chris asked about Buddha statues, I go in detail in explaining to you why the Buddha suggested that we don't have statues and he guided us in that way. And But then I also help you understand if you do have a statue, you know, how you could have that and kind of practice in a way that would still allow you to get to enlightenment. So in chapter 24, we're going to go point by point. I think there's, I forget how many there are. I think there's nine or maybe 11 different major misunderstandings that I put in that chapter that will help you as you navigate the world of social media, as you potentially at some point decide to investigate other teachings you'll understand the misunderstandings. And if you are just starting to learn with me, I don't necessarily suggest you go out and start learning with other books and other teachers. Usually, you know, a good two, three, four or five years, even some teachers here in Thailand recommend six years of study before you actually start branching out and learning with another teacher because you need to gain a really strong foundation and understanding of what that teacher is sharing and be able to see the changes to the condition of the mind before you start introducing a whole lot of other things. It wouldn't be wise for you to start reading different things and spending time with other teachers if you're trying to really grasp the understanding of a particular teacher's teachings and really move through the path to enlightenment with that particular teacher. I see Bassam raised his hand, so he must have something he'd like to talk about. So before I wrap up, let me just check in with Bassam. Yes, sure. Uh, Marianne has a question. She writes, since it's the last chapter, will it be our last class for these sessions? Or will we have more classes that touch on frequently asked questions? Or how have you determined if you have attained enlightenment? Yes, we're going to cover all of that. So it is the last chapter in the book, but it's not the end of all the content in the book. So next Sunday, we're going to be in the last chapter, which is chapter 24. But then there's going to be additional classes throughout the month of March to cover all those additional aspects of the book, like the frequently asked questions, like how to determine if you've attained enlightenment and all these other things. So every Sunday from now until the end of the month is still this group learning program. The very last Sunday in March, I'm going to be teaching a topic that's actually not in this book. It's called the five hindrances to enlightenment. And it's not in volume one, but I put it in at the very end of this group learning program, because now that you've learned all these different teachings about how to attain enlightenment, there's these five hindrances that the Buddha taught, the five major obstacles of what's going to hinder you from attaining enlightenment. So we're going to be covering that as part of our last Sunday in March. But then the very first Sunday in April, which is the 3rd of April, we inserted a special class, which is similar to what we did two years ago. Two years ago, the students asked for a class where they could just have kind of like an interview style and ask me all kinds of questions about my own life, my own journey, you know, my childhood, my 
early adulthood, my adulthood, you know, why did you move to Thailand? You know, how do you maintain a life with a family and actually share and practice these teachings? You know, are you ever coming back to the U.S.? You know, what was it like when you first started meditating? And what did you experience when you were first meditating? You know, what was the hardest parts of this path for you and the challenges that you encountered as part of this path? Any number of questions like this, I'm going to have a special session on the 3rd of April, which is a Sunday, where all of you, whether you're on Facebook, YouTube, or in Zoom, you can just ask any questions you like. There's no question that you can't ask. You can ask anything that you like, and I'll just share with you anything from my life that can potentially help you in your life. You can just ask me any questions that you like. So we're going to do that on the 3rd of April. And then on the 6th of April, we're going to restart the whole program from the beginning, and that's a Wednesday. And oftentimes, students who go through this program once will repeat it a second or third time because the first time through, you kind of get your bearings and you kind of get an overview and an understanding of what this path is. And then the second time through, you deepen it and you understand it further. There's even students that have taken this program three, four times. I know that there's students that have read this first book, you know, eight, 10, 12 times, because each time you read it, you glean more information and you retain more of it. Because as you're starting to learn and your mind becomes less and less cluttered and less muddled, you start getting more concentration. You get that kind of in a first pass as you develop your practice, your mind starts to become a bit more concentrated than it was before. And then a second time through, you start retaining more and your mind starts to be more concentrated and more focused a second time through. And then even a third time through, you know, and as you progress, you might decide to take this program more than once. So you're more than welcome to do that and continue to learn. And we're going to just keep on going. So classes won't stop. We will get to a point where I'll say, okay, we're restarting the program, but it's going to be the same schedule of Sunday and Wednesdays, the same time, and we'll just keep on going. So if you've joined this program midway through or here at the end, we're going to be restarting it all over again. Or if you have went from the beginning, like Miriam did, from the beginning all the way now to the end, you can restart it and continue to learn and continue to gain more insight. As we have different questions in class, each class, I kind of teach it a little bit different because of impermanence. You're going to hear different things that I say that are different, but I'm also going to say the same things in some classes, but you're going to hear them a different way because when you first started learning, you didn't quite hear it the same way as you're hearing it on this second time through, and it's going to maybe sit differently with you, or it's going to spur different questions that you have a second time or a third time through that you didn't have on the first time. So if you'd like to continue to learn, you certainly can. And we're going to continue to progress, as I mentioned in our schedule. If you go to the sign-up page for this, which you can get to if you go to the website, which is buddhadailywisdom.com, and you click on online learning, there you'll see a link for the group learning program and there it has a full schedule of all the different topics that i cover and the dates and so forth and so on so you can see the whole lineup of all the classes that i teach any more questions Basim? thank you sir no more questions 
All right. Well, I'll just say have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for joining. Thank you so much for your dedication and commitment to learning and practicing. It's been wonderful to help you guys get to this point in developing your practice. And we've got more to continue to learn as we go forward. So we'll see you guys in a future class. Have a very lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.